Recovery On Air, the official podcast of Crossroads Addiction Rehabilitation. Candid discussion about addiction and recovery with the people who have lived it, along with input from experts on the journey from struggle to triumph. Laugh, cry, and be inspired. And now, your host for Recovery On Air, Donna Alexander. Welcome to Recovery On Air, the show in which we try to break the stigma of addiction by talking about it. I am your host, Donna Alexander. And I am your co-host, Dolce Mitchell. And so in the studio today, we are honored to have Patrick Rowland. Hello, glad to be here. So glad to have you, Patrick. He is a substance use disorder counselor at River Source, Mm -hmm. correct? Correct. And he is also the author of three different books. Mm -hmm. So Patrick, we want to hear about your story of your addiction recovery. And then we got some other things that we're going to talk about. So... Okay. The floor is yours. So um, my story is a lot about going from kind of being a person that was very bullied and abused to a person that that st- that has used that pain to create power, right? So um, I, th- my first memory growing up is being afraid to go to the bus stop because boys threw rocks at me. Um, that kind of behavior continued all the way through school, high school, college. Um, they called me the whipping boy in high school, um, in college, the very first week of, Mm -hmm. of the, of the freshman year, I was walking to my dorm room from the bathroom and about four guys grabbed me, um, in masks and threw me into this room and pinned me down on the floor (sighs) and started beating my face with these like socks that they had made. They were like kind of phallic socks and to me it's kind of gay that a bunch of straight guys made socks but you know <laughs> I, agree I mean with that, like, you know whatever <laughs> like do your thing you do you boo but um <laughs> you know there, there were consequences for that for them and college actually was okay i went to a small college in um central iowa called central college it's where my family's from and um i had a good experience there after that um but then I came back to here and I started my career as a journalist. I was a journalist for about 10 years. Oh, wow. Ultimately, I was the editor of Echo Magazine. Um, Unfortunately, I um, I was a... when you're bullied by people and you have a strained relationship with your father and you're attracted to men, which I am. Um, Me too. Yes. Um, <laughs> Me too. And that's, and that's, and that's what I was being, that's what the rocks were about. Right. I mean, right. like they picked me out like a long time ago, but, um, you know, when you when you grow up like that, you don't know how to have healthy relationships with men. And unfortunately, I just was in one abusive relationship after another. Ultimately, a very physically abusive relationship coincided with this big job that I had. And when I was the editor of Echo Magazine, I was a known person. Like, I hung out with celebrities at Hollywood parties, and I yeah. went on big trips that were free, and I got tickets to every play and concert and anything you can imagine. The mayor knew me by name, and we talked on the phone sometimes. I mean, Is that here in Phoenix? Crazy. Yeah, that was here in Phoenix. This was in 2007 to 2009. And unfortunately, at the same time, I was in an abusive relationship, and I was being beaten up just mm-hmm. about every day, uh. verbally, mentally, you know, physically also. And, and that... Um, that coincided with my ego, which was huge because I had this big job. Yeah. I was just lashing out at everybody, right? Because I couldn't lash out at my partner because he 
would hurt me if I did, right? So it, everything was out here, everywhere else, and, and I was drinking a lot too. And I got fired from that job, and it was 2009, and that was when the economy was really bad. Yeah. And journalism was kind of dying also. Um, and so I was unemployed for about um, two years. Still with and- that same guy? Well, yeah, I told everybody. So this is where the addiction part starts. I I told everybody that we had broken up, but I was meeting him in CD hotels oh, and lying, yeah. and I was getting away with it. So I was a goody two shoes. I went to Brophy. I got straight A's. I went to college right after um, high school. Um, you know, I did all the right things, and then I was with this guy, and it was dangerous and bad, and and. Really stupid, actually, but um, <laughs> I liked I liked lying and I liked getting away with lying. And the problem, though, is is that I had this father who put me down all the time and made me feel really small. And you know, living in his basement and being unemployed for two years really gave him license to you know not be happy with me. Yeah, yeah. And so it was a really bad time. And you know, at, at some point, this abusive guy like. I don't remember if he dumped me or I dumped him or it ended. Yeah. And I was unemployed and I didn't have this relationship, which, which fed because when you're in an abusive relationship, you get addicted to it in the same way you get addicted to anything else. It's attention, right? If somebody's going to leave you, you try to do something to make them stay with you. Right. Right. So that was that. So the relationship was over. I'm living in my father's basement. I'm like 37 or 38. No, wait, 36, something mid thirties. And I'm just, like, I feel like a total loser, and I think, well, what should somebody like me do? And I literally get this idea that I'm going to become a drug addict because that is the best course of action for me. And so I'm a goody two-shoes from Arrowhead Ranch who went to Brophy and doesn't know anything about drugs. So I put an ad up on Craigslist oh my gosh, for someone wow. to teach me how to do drugs. Oh, no way. Did yes, you seriously? I did. All in code, of course. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and now, our, how did you know what kind of code to use I, for I that? don't know. Apparently, I was a born drug addict. Because I knew exactly what to say. Yeah. In our in our culture, we call meth Tina. Yes, we do. So I all my posts were like looking to become Tina Turner, show me how to dance, like stuff like that. That's what the <laughs> ad said. Literally. And um somebody responded. And um in November of 2010, I walked into this man's house and um you know, at the very same time I started to use drugs, I sat with somebody who was kind and loving to me for the first time in my life, and we talked about music and art and, and sports and and politics and love and, and all these big ideas while we we're getting high. Of course. And, um, you know, it just was a it was the perfect storm. And so my early using was with just this person, Pac is what I called him, um, because I wanted him to be mysterious, like big on Sex in the City. <laughs> Which um, um, I adore, Sex in the City. And he was a um, Green Bay Packers fan, so that's where Pac oh. comes from. Um, and, you know, over the course of three years, the relationship developed. Um, it started out as a weekend drug buddy thing to a, mar- a marriage, right? But right. Oh, we wow. were not legally married because it was only 2014 and it would be a year before before that would become legal and um you know i lived there all the bills were in my name the only thing that wasn't in my name in the house was the lease because he had already moved into the house when i moved in and um he never told anyone about me he never came out to anyone and all this kind of culminates in me finding him dead in our home on january 7th of 2014 um and 
you know, within about an hour, the Phoenix police were combing through my home, basically treating me like I was a criminal and asking me all these questions like I didn't belong in my own home. And I had all these like bills and stuff to prove that I lived there. But because I wasn't on the lease, they told me that I had to leave. And then this family. That's insane. It's insane, right? Wow. This family that I had never met comes into the house and take over. They take over the whole thing and basically treat me like I don't exist. And um, they basically make my home um, a war zone. Like they, the first day he died, they came into the house and took like everything out of it. Didn't even ask me what was mine. So they took stuff that was mine. Um, didn't care. Were when, they okay with him? No, 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 he never told anyone. Taboo. So yeah. not only w- were they finding out that he was gay, you know, his death was related to drugs. He had a heart attack that was caused by meth toxicity. Yes. So they're finding out that he, he's gay. He's a drug addict. He's, you know, not really great things to find out. Right. And so I was standing there because I lived there and they were mad at me because they couldn't be mad at him because he yeah, was dead. Right. So right. unfortunately, bad, um, bad news. that. The the thing that really broke me was the funeral because that was my moment, right? That was yeah. my like don't cry for me Argentina moment, right? Right. And I didn't get to have it. So Right. <laughs> yeah. So um I decided that I was gonna show them because they had been so mean to me and I started using really heavily. Um and <laughs> unfortunately, you know, I wasn't ready for that. Um he was very protective of me, and when we used together, there was literally nothing bad that was ever going to happen to me because he was a big, imposing football player kind of guy. And so yeah. all of a sudden, I'm this, like, goody-goody two-shoes um, living in the drug world, and it just really wasn't my jam. And um, it was – it got just really weird really fast. Um, so I, I, I don't really want to talk about that whole, like – I mean, we all know what I did. Um, so for about a year and a half – um, my, my drug use escalated from the weekend thing that started to right. an everyday thing. Um, are, you, are you working now, Patrick? Were you working at that time? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So you were working before he passed away. Yeah. I got a job actually right away when he and I got together at a big, it was a big corporate job actually. Yeah. And I made a lot of money and it sucked the soul out of me. Yes. But I made a lot of money. And so in in my addiction, it didn't really matter, right? Right. My soul was sucked out of me anyway. So the, but that becomes that becomes an issue later on. Uh-huh. So anyway, yeah. um, so this all culminates. So I'm an everyday user. Um, I turned 40 in t- 2015, and I get this really great idea to go to Vegas to go see Britney Spears and Mariah Carey in concert. And, you know, it's supposed Obsessed. to be this, right? Yeah. Gay fever dream, right? <laughs> um, so I get this, you know, it sounds like a good idea. The problem is, is that I can't get on the plane before going without getting high. Right. And so instead of this really awesome weekend doing these really awesome things, I spend this really horrible weekend in Vegas doing really weird things and putting myself in really bad positions and ultimately deciding after being awake for about four days that I was going to jump out the 26-story window of the hotel I was staying at and decided to call my mom and tell her this. And I hung up the phone on her and I said... I, I would rather jump out this window than ever see you again. Click. And oh, I don't, geez. Yeah. Ugh. And I don't know how, because my mom was in the beginning stages of Alzheimer's, and I didn't tell her where I was, but about 10 minutes later, there was a knock on the door, and it was police, fire. I mean, the whole town came. Um, and um, 
There I was sitting on the floor of the Palms Hotel in Las Vegas on a Saturday night watching all these people, like women in evening gowns and men in, in, in suits, right? They're just having the time of their life because they're on vacation. And I'm crumpled up on a ball on the floor of this of this um, hallway talking to a paramedic. And, you know, so my partner had died and my dad had just been diagnosed with Parkinson's and I was scared because I didn't have a good relationship with him. And my mom was starting to act weird, which became Alzheimer's. And so literally that's my whole family. And I thought my whole family was dying and I didn't know how to handle that. And so I'm telling this paramedic this, and she says this thing to me that just kind of jolts me into um, instant, like, it's my moment of powerless. She said, how can you take care of anyone else if you can't take care of yourself? And I just had this moment where, oh my gosh, I have to, I have to accept the consequences of my actions and I have to get sober. And luckily in Vegas, apparently, um, if you like try to kill yourself, um, they don't arrest you. They put you in a mental institution. Right. 72 hours. Yep. Yeah. So I like to say that I got Britney Spears when I went to go see Britney Spears. But no, <laughs> um, so, so I end up in this <laughs> mental institution in Vegas. And, you know, it was scary because, you know, Vegas, we always think of Vegas as like this, the strip, right? Right. Vegas is a big city. Vegas yes, it is. is like as big as Phoenix, not maybe not as big, but it's a big city. And so I end up in this um, mental institution clear on the other side of town. And I was there for more than 72 hours. I was there for like a week. So I had to prove that I wasn't crazy. And so, you know what? I decided, I made a decision that I was going to start showing up in a very intentional way. So when I went to art class, even though I'm not an artist, I decided that as long as I tried, I made a Picasso. Right. And yeah. I decided that if I went to gym and we were shooting baskets and I tried to shoot the basket, I was Shaquille O'Neal because I tried, right? <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, when we went to go share, I'm actually pretty good at talking, um, but um, I decided <laughs> that if I shared in a good way, um, I was Oprah Winfrey, right? Yeah. So when you step into this intentional um, version of yourself, I literally stepped into my light, right? And so I get out of Vegas, I come back here, and, you know, somehow my mom, again, who's in the early stages of Alzheimer's, before I had left, she had found this grief counselor for me. And it had been a year and a half since he had died, and I had not gotten any counseling. I was using, that's what I did. Um, yeah. And I remember sitting in front of her before I went to Vegas, and I said, you know, I'm willing to, to, to talk to you about my grief and stuff like that, but um, I'm not going to stop using. I am not doing that. And she just looked at me, and she said, Mm-hmm. And, uh, so, so I come back. Her name was Joan. Um, anyway, um, she's this older woman. She looked like Whitney Houston's mom um, in the book. I, I call that chapter Sissy Houston. Um, anyway, yeah. um, I tell her about Vegas, and she's like, oh, so I see you got hit by a two-by-four, did you? And I said, yeah. She's like, well, are you ready to do the work? And I said, yeah. And she said, well, Patrick, I can help you with the grief, but I don't know anything about drug addiction, and you're a drug addict, and if you're going to work with me, you have to go to one meeting a week. And I didn't want to go to one meeting a week. I had been in and out of the rooms, and it was during that year and a half when I was um, using, so I attracted really shady men. And right. I, was, yeah. I was desperate for attention from men because my partner was dead. So it always just ended up weird, and, and you know, I just had didn't have a lot of trust. But I was willing to take a suggestion in early recovery. And because I wanted to get better, I didn't want to hurt anymore. And so I went to that one meeting. I knew these people from um, 20 years ago in the 90s. I, my best friend at the time was in the program. And I 
hung around her enough to meet her friends, and they were all still sober. These women nice. had 25, 26, 27 years of sobriety, and I called them up, and I said, um, can I hang out with you guys? I'm going to die if I don't hang out with you guys. And and they said, sure. And they, these older women, I called them my MILF posse. <laughs> and um, every Friday night, I went to this meeting. And then, you know, as we do in recovery, we have um, celebrations, right? Yes. And one of them was having their birthday thing. And then I go to this thing. And right there is this girl, the one that had introduced me to all these people all those years ago. We'd had a falling out when we were both in mutual addiction. And this was the first time we'd seen each other in five years. And the seat next to her was the only one that was empty. Of course it was. Right? And we started talking. She said, you know, Patrick, I think you'd like my home group. And so I started that. So then I was going to two meetings. Oh, my. Right? Okay, yeah. And so then, <laughs> so about four months have passed, and I've been doing five months maybe. I'm doing that. And I'm still not all there, right? I'm, you know, kind of... I'm five months sober, right? Right. Right. So, um, and I'm still not very trusting of men. I'm still in all this fear. And one day on a Friday night, which was my tri- Fridays were very triggering for me because usually that's when the use started. Right. The right. Weekend the weekend. Yeah. The weekend. Um, I was literally, I was about to turn right into a Safeway parking lot to start my. I was going to get money out and then go buy my pipe and then go buy my, you know, I had a ritual. Yes. And somehow I stopped myself before turning right. And I text one of those women and I said, I think I need a sponsor. I need, if I don't, if I don't start doing some, some work on this stuff, I'm going to relapse. And she's like, I know just the guy for you. And I also need to say that part of my story is also when I was in that hospital, I had been diagnosed bipolar. Right. And, okay. you know, and I share the same diagnosis. Yeah. yeah. So, I'm 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 really sober and I'm going through all that stuff anyway. Pause, post acute withdrawal syndrome, right? Yes. All the fogginess and irritability and mood swings and all that. And I'm bipolar, so I just wasn't very well. And um, you know, she introduced me to this man named David D. Um, I think all I have to say is that name, and most people in this community will know who he is. And and the thing that was great about him is that he was very connected in the sober community, and he took me literally everywhere with him. He was so, like, proud of me, and so he just wanted to give me a family. And the best thing that he did for me was he made me go to a men's group with him on Thursday night. Yep. Now, remember... I don't like men, right? right? I mean, I like men, but I don't like men. And so um, I sat at this meeting the first time, and I, I gave him the stink eye, and, you know, I was not having it. And then after the meeting ended, I very specifically said to him, how dare you make me do that? Don't ever ask me to do that again. And then I stormed off, right? <laughs> well, guess where I was the next Thursday? Right there and in the same the seat. And then the next Thursday, yep. and then the next Thursday, and then okay. the next thing that I knew, I was going on their retreat. They do a retreat two times a year. Um, we go to Mexico and build a house for a family yes. every February. Oh, wow, I started doing yeah. that. So the, like, I was totally ingrained in this. And what happened in that in that men's group was I started to come alive because what I, I needed those men to love me you know, like I had shown in a who healthy I really way, was. in a healthy way, in a healthy way, and it made it helped me become a man. And so that one meeting that Joan wanted me to go to literally became an everyday thing: meetings, sponsoring, speaking, um, committees. Um, I was doing something every day for my recovery, and that's yeah. when my life changed. Um, at about 18 months of sobriety, I released my first book. It's called Unpacked Sparkle, and it is about pack and the grief and Vegas and the getting sober. Um, and once that happened, I started to have this like internal 
like struggle about what I was doing with my life. Um, I was too sober to be at this corporate job that made me miserable, right? Right. And so yeah. at this point, I had a different sponsor, Stefan, um, Hope Dealer. Um, yeah. And, oh, uh, love him. See? He was on. The, he was on here. Oh, was he? This, yes, we okay. had him on the podcast. So, um, you know, he and, and a friend of mine named Julie really together um, made me believe that if I had enough courage to take the first step to leave that job, that things would work out for me. And Stefan even said, there's going to there's gonna be an event that happens and you're just going to know that you're done. And sure enough, my boss acted a fool one day and was totally unreasonable. And I was like, it's not okay to treat me like this. And I did everything right. You know, I gave notice. I got a party. Like usually when I leave a job, I get fired or, or walk, walked out. Or, <laughs> yeah. you know, this this yeah. time I got a party. So it, it all worked out. But, you know, I left that job in November 2017 and I did not have a plan. But enter... Dave D again. And he says, well, why don't you become a peer support? And I'm like, I want, I knew that I was supposed to be helping people. Yeah. I just didn't know what that looked like. So I did. I, I got my, my peer support certificate from Ren. Yep. And, um, you know, the best, the best thing happened to me early in that is that I got offered a job right away at a, at a fairly, it was a new treatment center at the time, but, um, as, as a nighttime BHT, so I was working right. overnight, yeah. and that wasn't yeah. really great on my for my mental health. But right. um, I got fired from that job, and um, it was the best thing that ever happened to me because I knew, like, I knew even in that job, like here I had taken this big leap to leave this huge job where I was making a lot of money to go make like fourteen dollars an hour or whatever overnight and and make myself crazy. I realized that that to be what I really wanted to be, I was going to have to go to school. Yep. Mm-hmm. So had I not gotten fired from that job, I don't know if I'd be a clinical lead at a treatment center now, right? Right. So what happens is I enroll in grad school at Grand Canyon University. And, you know, I, I get a job at a, at a, at Lifewell. So yep. I was, I was a peer supporter at Lifewell for about yep. a year. I got promoted at Lifewell to case management. So I really got a good bird's eye view of like all kinds of different facets of, of the business. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, I decided after, like when it was time for me to do my internship, I decided that I didn't, I, I, that I didn't want to overwhelm myself. I wanted to focus on that. And I also had this this feeling that if I just focused on that, everything was going to work out. And what happened was I did my internship at Unhooked Recovery. Yes. Yeah. And I got hired there as a therapist before I even had my master's degree. That's right. wonderful. So that's where I started. Yeah. Um, I worked there for a year. Um, I loved it there. Um, I loved the clients there. I loved the work we did there. Unfortunately, Unhooked Recovery was about an hour away from where I live. And it just, that just. That to me, it was just overwhelming. It was killing me. And I also, I got my my license at this time. And when I got my license, like this world opened up. Yeah, absolutely. So part of my story is I want people to know that everybody wants to work in recovery, right? Go all the way. Get the degree. Get the license. Every door opens up. I got offered like six jobs. When I got that license and for the first time in my life, I was able to actually like choose, like I didn't have to do something because I had to, I got to do something because I put myself in the position to choose. Right. And you wanted to. So that's yeah. amazing. And so, um, I ended up at the river source 
And I didn't even know, but um, they were opening up a new um, outpatient treatment center in the West Valley. And I live in the West Valley. I've always lived in the West Valley. And <laughs> um, they basically made me the lead clinician of the joint. And so since October, I have been leading this facility. I went from peer support to the to the top dog at this place. So yeah. that's wow. what happens when you, when you do the work. Yeah. So the other thing that happened during this time is my parents both failed, right? And, um, you know, it was actually right at the beginning of the pandemic when everything really hit the fan. Um, within the span of six weeks, all three of us were in the hospital for very serious reasons. And um, I knew that my dad fell in the garage Um it was June. It was hot. Nobody found him for two hours. I was at work. Oh, man. Um, my mom, I don't know where my mom was, but um, um, yeah, he sat on the ground um, for about two hours until he was found. And, you know, I went to the emergency room. They would only let me go in the emergency room then. It was June of COVID, right? 2020. Yeah. Um, and I, I looked at him and I said, this is it. He's never going to walk again. He's never, this is it. Like, and I knew... I, enough to know that like when people with Parkinson's like have that final fall or whatever, that's when everything else goes too. Yeah. So I knew, I knew that my time with him was limited and I knew that um, I needed to, it, it, it was one thing to apologize for showing up to his 75th birthday party high or, you know, some of the like things I did. I really needed to make amends to him for, for not liking him my whole life. Um, my Stefan really identified that he's like, does he know that you don't like him? And I said, well, it's not like I'm going to tell him. And he's like, oh yes, you're going to tell him. You're going to go there. You're going to, you're going to go there right now. And you're going to tell him and you're going to call me when you're done. Click. And so I went and (laughs) yeah, yeah, I had this conversation (laughs) with my dad and my dad was like, I know. And I don't really like you either. And so (laughs) there you go. Wow. And so that sounds really bad, but you know what? That moment of vulnerability between us actually ended all of that. And it opened up a door for us to start talking to each other. And the other thing about my dad is that he was not a man of faith. My dad didn't believe in anything. And okay. I was, I am, because I, you know, I, I do right. this deal, right? And and I really felt like it was important to me to guide him toward God so that he would feel safe to die. Yeah. Because he was scared. Um, Parkinson's basically eats away at your body. So at the end of his life, like they flipped him over one day and like there were like these tunnels in his in his skin. Oh, like man. you could see his bone into oh. like it's through yeah. I that's, didn't know that that's what that looks yeah, like. Yeah. And he was laying there in agony and um you know I I went there every week for about it was about there it was a nine month process from the fall to when he died and I went there and you know at first I went there and he would scream and yell at me like he always did and I would go call Stefan crying and then over time I just started showing up in strength right and so he would yell at me and I would just stand there and I would be stone right and I would show him grace and then the next time I would go there I would show him love and then the next week I would go there and I would show him patience and before time this armor the suit of armor that I had built around me with with God and the fellowship and my life, um, he didn't yell at me anymore. Mm-hmm. He just saw a different person. And we started having these really intimate discussions about God. And, um, you know, I, I, this gut thing that we get here. Um, yep. So it, my birthday was on a 
on a, I can't remember what day it was, but I always went to go see my dad on Sundays and I got this gut feeling that I need to go see him on a Saturday. And so I went there. And the other thing that I should point out during this time when my dad's deteriorating, he was also losing his mind too. Yes. Okay, he yeah. was very demented. Because it eats away at your brain yeah, too, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, he was very paranoid and he, he thought he thought that he could come home. And that's what he was always yelling at me about. He's like, take me home. And I'm like, how are you going to get around? He's like, I can lay on the floor. I'm like, oh how are you going to go to the bathroom? I'll go to the bathroom on the floor like he, like that's how yeah he just wanted to come home yeah and you know what what so this day i go there it's a saturday i don't normally go there on saturday and somehow my dad is 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 like right like this like we're looking each other in the coherent. eye he's coherent he's making sense and he he says to me he says patrick i know that i'm gonna die but I don't want to die because I am enamored with the man that you have become. And I can't oh wait. My I can't wait to see what you do next. Well, he's seeing you now still. Right. And so, so that was two weeks before he died. And then the, I went to go see him um, the next week. And this is when I saw the tunneling and all this stuff. And I just saw the agony in his face and it was terrible. And um, I told the hospice nurse that they needed to put him on more, more pain medication. And, and she said, well, he'll die within a week if we do that. And I said, okay, it's time. Yeah. And so I went there. This the, this week was crazy. Um, so I had, I was about to start a new job from all those job offers I got. And I was also chairing the, we have a, in, in our fellowship, we do a 12 step in the Pines retreat every two years. And I was the yes. chair of it. Okay. And so I'm, I'm going to go see my dad before I leave to go up north for this retreat. And, um, you know, I, I took his hands in mine and we prayed and, and the last words I heard from him were prayer. And my dad was not a believer. So for my dad Ooh, to pray, yeah. isn't that amazing? I, I, I got the shivers. Yeah, that's yeah. that's that's what that vulnerability created, right? And so I'm up in I'm up in um Prescott at the retreat Friday night. We're sitting at dinner and like all these people that I love are sitting around me, Stefan, Bimo, like all these people. And I get this call from the hospice nurse, and she's like, Patrick, you're never going to believe your dad just told me that he made a deal with God that if he took him, he could be your guardian angel. Oh, my gosh. And I had this moment of peace come over me because I knew that I knew that my dad was going to be was going to die, yeah. but I knew that he was going to die in a peaceful, godly way. And I knew that he was going to be okay. Yeah. And um, the retreat happened. Um, I got word Sunday coming back that he was really bad. Um, I was supposed to start. So there was a job in between Unhooked and and um, River Source that, that wasn't a good fit. But so I was starting this job. This is like my start date, right? And um, I get the call that my dad had died. And I went to work. I went to my first day of work. I went from a guy who sat on the floor of the Palms Hotel on a Saturday night who was so messed up that he couldn't even enjoy a trip to Vegas and see his favorite singers in concert over a death to the kind of guy who can lead somebody to God and um, then show up at work the day they die and, and just live. You know what's amazing about that um, is that with all the manipulation and um, the guys that had, you know, totally abused you mentally, physically, even all my with life. The, yeah, within your father as well, is that somehow you got to change someone to completely love who you are. Yeah, I think that what that happened sense. is that my, my dad saw me becoming a man 
And, you know, I, 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 I also need to share it because I'm a therapist and I think therapy is really valuable. And I was in therapy in this nine-month period when he was dying. And I had this aha moment in therapy where um, I realized that the reason why my dad had always been so mean to me had nothing to do with me. Absolutely. Yeah. He wanted better for me. And his way of wanting better for me was unfortunately to be a dick, but you know, right, like, right. That, yes. that's just how he loved. That's, that's the only way he knew how to and love. And how was he loved? He wasn't. And, and, and yeah. that's it. I found so. out like when I was doing research for my first book, like one of the first things I wanted to do when I got sober was figure out how I got here. And I'm telling you, drug addiction and mental and mental health stuff shakes every every tree branch in my family. Same. I mean, yeah. I found out that my grandma had, what's that, electroshock therapy? Oh, wow. Yeah. I found out that my grandpa, who I had never met because he had died before I was born, was an alcoholic. Yep. And that had contributed to his death. I didn't know that. I didn't know that, that I didn't really have a chance, right? And so, you know, my mom struggle, struggles too. And, and my dad, I believe my dad was also mentally ill. He took... He was very anxious, and a lot of his screaming and bellowing was was mental illness. And yeah. probably fear. And fear. Lots of fear. Lots of fear. Yeah. So tell us just a little bit, Patrick, about your books. So you wrote, the first one was about PAC, and yes. a little bit too more about the grief that you suffered there with PAC as compared to the grief that you walked as a sober, amazing man of God through your dad's yeah. death. So... When Pac died, I didn't have any tools to really know how to deal with that. And um, I also was, you know, into my addiction by this point. So I was doing the opposite of, of recovering from that. I was just exacerbating it, right? Yeah. Because I was using to, to fill this void and to, you know, I was just in this weird, you know what the world's like when we're using, right? It's just. We end up with weird people in our house. Yes. And it's scary. And we put ourselves in just these really horrible situations. And, you know, I spent a year and a half um, on the floor of my of my um, closet in my apartment pushing a towel up against the crack of light at the bottom of the door because I didn't want anyone to see what I was doing to the kind of guy who writes a book and tells everybody what happened and yeah. then um, knows. So so here's the deal with my dad. Like, I knew from when Pac died, like, certain things that you feel. I felt, so there's five stages of grief, right? Right. Um, so when did you think you gave your time to have grief over Pac? Like, how did you I get didn't. through? I didn't until yeah, I got okay. sober. Yeah. So the five stages are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. They don't always flow in that order. It's, right. it's all over the place. But because I was using, I was in like mega bargaining, like just questions upon questions, creating like just these big like, you know, you know what we do. Yep. Um, I had this whole like CIA thing going on in my head about him. <laughs> and, um, you know, like, like I had, you know, I just had all these grand ideas about what wasn't true. Right. You know, I, I knew who I was to him. I knew that he loved me. I knew that he chose me. Um, you know, that was all real, but drugs made it seem fake or questionable and then the more drugs you use the more out there you get i mean i was not well you know right mm -hmm. um and so i knew like when i saw my dad in the er that day after he had fallen i knew that i didn't want to sit 
in that space of asking all those questions and feeling that way. Um, you know, in, in my latest short story from this book called Time, um, it's actually about my dad's death. And I talk, I talk about the difference between being in a waiting room and being in the living room. And I think a waiting room, like, like when we are in a waiting room, it's fear, right? It paralyzes us. It doesn't let us live. It doesn't let us thrive. Um, we just make bad decisions and we, we, we stop, right? And when we move into the living room, we actually get to make the, the choice to live. And I believe that I was standing firmly in the living room as my dad laid there, you know, watching me, you know, during that time, I got my master's and I got my licensure and I got all these job offers and I was interviewed on Brandon Lee's podcast. And every time I went to go see my dad, there was some big win that I was showing him that I had done. And my dad got to see me in this, in this new way. Right. And I really believe that it was because I showed up living that he was able to let go. Because he didn't have to worry about me anymore. And so mm. I think that what right. people need to, to do when they're facing grief, first of all, you need to talk about it because we <laughs> don't talk about it. But if right. you can, think about it in a way that is, it's not, it's, it's not a waiting room, it's a living room. Right. I like that. I yeah. like that too. That's awesome. It's an opportunity to find joy. I found the greatest joy in my life from from these deaths. If you remember my story, I was sobbing on the floor of the of this um, hallway in Vegas about all these people dying, and both these deaths in different ways um, created joy for me. Right. Yeah. The freedom. So, and, and guess what? That's what the people that we love want. They don't want us to be miserable and sitting on our floor that, doing yeah. drugs pushing towels sure. up against they want us to stand in our light and show them who we are right this is our opportunity to to sparkle that's why yes. i'm the sparkle king right? <laughs> yes, that's right so you wrote a children's book too tell us a little I bit did. about that okay so I've just always had this like vision that I, that, that my sparkle thing was my brand. And, you know, the, the first book is, is a self-help book. It's, it's perfect for the audience that it's for, but you know, it's about drugs and stuff. So it, there's, there's a demographic that probably shouldn't read that. So um, what, what, what would you say the audience is then for your first book? Um, it's anybody that wants to find their way into the light, really. People yeah. that are recovering from mental illness, people that are recovering from grief, people that are recovering from drugs and alcohol. Um, it's I basically wrote it for all the people that were that were broken like I was. And struggling. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um and then I thought, well, so I can tell my story in a lighter way. And and my my whole thing about the sparkle, the sparkle is really about putting your hand out and showing someone else how to find their own, right? Yes. Yeah. And so because you um, know how, show how. So. Yeah. And I believe that all these things happened for me, not to me. All those sad, horrible things that I talked about happened for me so that I could live in my light and show other people how to live in my light. And so the children's book um, kind of introduces the concept of the sparkle to a younger audience. Because, and showing strength. Yeah, because you know. the, 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 this book is about a, a gecko who's being bullied. Oh, he's oh being wow. Bullied, yes. He's being bullied in school. And through that bullying, um, he so 
it's actually a true story, but I, I changed a little bit. When I was in third grade, um, so it was like 1983, 84, Michael Jackson was really popular. And um, my mom bought me this red and black jacket that looked just like the jacket he wore in the Thriller video. Oh, nice. And when I went to school, I thought I everyone was going to think that I was the shit. Well, they didn't like it. And they made fun of me. Oh. And it was like the worst day of my life. And I went home, eight years old, sobbed, cried, told my mom, how dare you make me wear this jacket? And I decided on that day that I was never going to shine again, right? And when I came into recovery, I started wearing these sparkly shoes. And um, all these people started noticing me because of these shoes. And I now, recognize now, you because of your shoes. Right? And now I have like... 15 pairs, 20 pairs, like whatever. I'm telling like, you, this you every sneakers are the best, the every, high tops. Every color, every size, whatever, right? It's 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 a calling card of, of hope and love and light. And um I don't have to hide and not be myself. So in the in the book, it's about a boy who's being bullied. He goes to school in these shoes, they make fun of the shoes. He says, I'm never going to wear these again. And then his mom helps him realize that he sparkles because of the shoes and he ne- the shoes show them who he is. And so my, my message is really, um, if you, if you yourself and show people who you really are, people will actually love you because what happens is, is he gets out of fear and he wears the shoes and people start to respond to that. And that's, what happened to me? And he, nice. could, you know, pretty much learned to love himself. He learned to love himself, and yeah. when when you were able to fully love yourself, you were able to give that back to other people. Exactly, in a very intentional way. Right. So that was the second book, and then when I had about three years of of recovery, I started thinking about topics that we think about when we have more recovery: um, self love, um, dropping the rock, um, character yep, defects, yep, yep. emotional sobriety. Right. So I'm sober. I don't want to do drugs anymore. That's like out of my life. But like, how do I stay sober? Um, how do you live? How do you live sober? And so a lot of things happened to me in a very short amount of time. At about three years, um, I called the storm. Yes. And mm-hmm, the storm mm-hmm. actually happened to wipe away what no longer served me and create a new harvest. And so this book is about a very specific time in my life where a bunch of bad stuff happened that I got through sober and led me to school and, and my new career and all this stuff. So it's about that time and how I used the tools to, to get through it. And then mm. the fourth is my short story about my dad's passing and how we yeah. Works. Amazing. Are you working on another? That'd I did. Great. I did actually last week start um, writing something. I don't know what it is. Okay. Um, but I started writing. Um, I, I kind of, I, well, I, th- there are some things coming that th- there's going to be more books, but, but there are some things that are coming that are, that are bigger than anything I've even talked about um, that are going to allow that to happen so very nice yeah and i'm sure a lot of it's going to be about life after mm-hmm. and you know positive amazing things so now you're, you're working at at river source yes yes and that's on the west side it's on the west side so our new outpatient treatment center we do php and iop by the way um we are at 79th avenue and thomas Okay, go ahead and give out the phone number if somebody wants to reach out. Um, then just call me, 602-318-7311. Okay, you I'll, guys. I'll get them where they need to go. And so we've been talking a lot about recovery here and that process. And obviously this podcast is by Crossroads. Yes. So we do residential treatment mm-hmm. and we do some IOP, sober living 
We're going to be opening a detox. We have a residential and a detox too. It's in um, Arizona City. And then so those clients feed into our two. Our our first outpatient clinic is in Gilbert. And then they opened up this West Valley one. And um, it's it's been slow kind of because it's new. But we're starting to pick up. Actually, in the last week, we have have our highest census right now. Okay. Right. So and and that's that's yeah. kind of the same thing that's going on with us is because we have Crossroads at Pure Heart, which is intensive outpatient and trauma, and yeah. we have somebody there that does EMDR. I so, do EMDR too. I got nice. I got certified last yeah. last year also. Yeah. So right around the time that I that I started this job, I did my EMDR stuff. So um, I am offering EMDR therapy um, in the West Valley. That's wonderful. So and so are we. Yeah, <laughs> at Crossroads. So, hey, you guys, you've been hearing from Patrick Rowland. He's told you a little bit about River Source. And for Crossroads, if you guys need help, then we can help you if you need to come into treatment. So look us up on our website, thecrossroadsinc.org. Admissions is 602-263-5242. So, you know, one of the things that Patrick and I talked a little bit about before we started this podcast is is about recovery. You know, there's a lot of places out there that can help you. And I don't think either one of us care where you go yeah. as long yeah. as you go. I yeah. mean, we are not in a competition here. We are in the business to save lives. So if you guys need help, contact Crossroads, contact River Source. We don't really care. Let's just try to get you in some place and get you some help. And what I've really noticed um, as I've been a therapist and as I have worked with other drug addicts is there is usually something related to grief that happens that makes us go over the edge. Um, There's some kind of death or loss or whatever it is. There's a moment where things change, right? And if you can can go to treatment and be open and vulnerable and, and go there, you can actually get through some of these things that you never thought you could. Right, exactly. And I agree with you. And and I think that it is important what you just said about the grief process is it's not just because somebody passes away or transitions. Sometimes it it's is a loss so, of a job or um, a, relationship. a marriage. Yes. Or, yeah. yeah. There's so many other things mm-hmm. about grief, you guys. So, I mean, if you're feeling down, I mean, reach out for some help. Yeah, I mean, a lot of my grief and things like that came from... Um, sexual you know abuse and um rapes and uh molestation so i uh grieved maybe in a different way but you know um i got through it you know crossroads was everything to me you know and figuring out later in life that i identify trans um was like the light at the end of the tunnel i really feel like that i can have a platform to maybe help and empower you know, youth or uh, the community in general, because, you know, I don't think I want anyone to live the life that, you know, I had growing up or be sad and be in pain and um, not feel like you belong anywhere, um, uncomfortable in your own skin. You know, um, there were times where, you know, I didn't love anything about me and it, uh, it stemmed from even my skin color, you know, um, the way, people and society looked at you know my gay communities um and it was just really hard for me you know um 
I and think. You know what the magic is, though, is that yeah. everything that you just said that that was dark. That's actually your sparkle. That's what that's makes you actually who you are and makes you so beautiful. Yeah. So if you can lean into that pain and make it your power, there's no telling what exactly. you can accomplish yeah. in this sober life, right? Yeah. And the yeah. thing is, is that both of you guys in, in your own ways, and I've seen you, Dolce, at the, the, I mean, the kitchen that you work at at Crossroads, how you can make a smile happen, how you can make somebody feel better. He brought me this amazing bread that Rosie made. <laughs> and I was like, yes, he's thinking about me. It was fantastic. So, and you, Patrick, with all that you're doing, you know, this is what we need is we need to drop some of these barriers that are keeping people from going and getting help. We need to try to give more places for people to go quit the competition thing there's yeah. enough people that need help for everybody out there every single person was born with their own sparkle right and it is if we come here and we do the work and we we show up we find it yes. and then we get to give that light to everyone around us right yeah you found yours i found mine you found right yes yeah and we're all here because we're all unique special, glorious, beautiful, resilient people that fought to find ourselves. Yes. And we get to use that light then to create a path for others to find themselves. Yeah, right. we exactly. Need, we need to show up exactly as we are because the world needs us who we are. And I believe that. Absolutely. Yeah. It has been such a pleasure to have you here thank and you're you. you're sparkling right now dude exactly <laughs> and dolce thank you so much oh, for yeah, coming and helping it. me out this yeah. was such an amazing show thank you so so much and until next time thanks for listening to recovery on air the official podcast of crossroads addiction rehabilitation with your host donna alexander Join us next time as we continue our candid discussions about addiction and recovery. Listen 24-7 anytime to this or any of our shows online at StarWorldWideNetworks.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. <laughs>